Do take out your copy of God's Word and turn to Acts chapter 13 um, for our next installment in this series working through the book of Acts, page 921, if you'd like to use the, the Bible provided for you. As you turn there, just a reminder that uh, this isn't our only opportunity to dig into God's Word today. Tonight, uh, we are continuing in Zechariah, the minor prophet, looking at chapter 9, uh, a prophecy that you might not realize you know well, um, because it has everything to do with uh, Palm Sunday. That's uh, the, the prophecy of a king riding in on a donkey to save Jerusalem. So that's tonight. And also, our Sunday school class for the adults, we're going through the difficult sayings of Jesus. Some of you were there last week. Brian and I are beginning this study. And um, uh, today, uh, a difficult saying indeed, judge not, lest you be judged. That was one that was offered in the class. I said, what do you guys want to hear what are some of the difficult sayings and that was one that was offered so we're going to look at that um, after worship in Sunday school which you're invited to but now we look at Acts 13 the uh, majority of this chapter picking up in verse 13 you remember this is Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey um, and uh, last time we saw as the word went forth opposition arose um, and uh, similar things happen in this passage as well, as we will see shortly. Let's begin in verse 13 to the end of the chapter. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and those who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he, God, had removed him, Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me... One is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried, all, carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. 
And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And therefore, he says in another psalm, Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowd, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. As far the reading of God's inerrant and life-giving word, may he add his blessing now to the preaching of it. Um, I don't know if many of you here are aware, I'm not sure what your interests are exactly, but the Emmys were a couple weeks ago, uh, which meant about three hours of uh, celebrities being offered a microphone to say whatever they want to say, which maybe at times is interesting, most of the time it's nauseating. Uh, who will they thank? What kind of jokes will they try to make that fall flat? But really what's interesting is what causes do they try to promote? You know, they're given 20 seconds, 30 seconds. What, what agenda do they try to sneak in and further in that opportunity? It's interesting that for so many of these celebrities, when given that chance to, to speak to, to such a large audience, you know, uh, televised all around the world, they, they instantly become evangelists. Um, or maybe uh, the hip word would be influencers. They become influencers. They want to influence the people listening to them uh, to, well, it depends. Is it to sell something, convince us of something, stir up some kind of social activism? 
Well, in our passage, Paul is also given an open mic, so, so to speak. He and Barnabas are in the synagogue of Antioch in Pisidia. That's not the same Antioch where they began their journey at, at the end of chapter, or at the beginning of chapter 13. Um, but a, a ruling elder stands up, this is the common practice, and he reads two scripture passages, one from the law, that's the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of, of the Bible, and then a passage from the prophets, which is really anything else in the Old Testament. And then they invite this guest rabbi to, to come on, come on up and, and give us a word of encouragement, which... Um, I don't know, if it was me, I, I would be kind of terrified if I'm visiting a church and then somebody says, I think we have a preacher here, give the sermon today. Like, what? But Paul is ready. And what does he, when he's given this opportunity, when he's given this open mic, what does he talk about? Well, look at verse 32. He tells us right there. He doesn't waste this opportunity trying to promote a social cause or to push a political agenda. Verse 32, he says, we bring you the good news. Paul preaches the gospel. That's how he summarizes this sermon. It's about the gospel. He preaches the good news. So I want us to note, note firstly this morning, that, that Paul, when given this opportunity, accentuates the gospel. He accentuates the gospel. That is, he hones in on it. He, he, he obsesses over it almost. He stresses it. He proclaims it. And this is instructive for us for at least two reasons, or, or, or maybe I should say it's instructive to us both as individuals, but also corporately as well. First, corporately, as a church, we're learning that this is what we need to be about, preaching the gospel. If we're not sharing the good news, then we're wasting our time here, and we have nothing to offer the people who come through our doors. Absolutely nothing. I don't know if you've ever taken the time to uh, look at the front of the, uh, the bulletin that we have. And, and we've borrowed this, um, this uh, rich language from churches that have been using it for hundreds of years. To all who are spiritually weary and seek rest. To those who mourn. Those who need comfort. Those who are struggling. Those who are sin, uh, sinners. Those who are strangers. And it goes on. And, and then it says, we, we welcome you. We have something for you. Why is it that we can say we have something for those who are suffering, those who are weighed down by sin, those who are seeking answers? Is it because we have a really good children's program? Is it, is it, because, is it because we have really stellar uh, music? Is it because we're just a real friendly bunch of people? No. Why is it that we say... If you're one of these people, which really encapsulates all of humanity, those who are weary, those who are mourning, those who are struggling, those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, why is it that we can say we have something for you? Because we have the gospel. And we give it. And we offer it. And we extend it. And if we're not doing that, then we might as well not show up. This is what people need. This is what you and I need every day and certainly every week in church. Donald Gray Barnhouse, he was the late former pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church, a big city there in, in Philadelphia, and he had a radio program, uh, Barnhouse in the Bible, that was broadcast around the world, CBS Radio. And on one of his radio programs, he asked a, a, a piercing, insightful question of his audience. He said, I want you to think, what, what would it be like if Satan was the mayor of your town, the mayor of your city? So, you know, here's a little thought experiment for us. 
you know, what would it be like if, if Satan was the mayor of Kalamazoo? And I don't know what your political affiliations are or anything, but Satan is not the mayor of Kalamazoo. So what would it be like, though, if, if truly the son of darkness ruled Kalamazoo? And, you know, images of, of fire probably come to mind and looting and violence, a parade of sexual perversion and all the rest. But this was the answer that Barnhouse gave. This is what he said it would look like in your city. He said, all the bars and the pool halls would be closed. Pornography would be banished. And there would be pristine streets and sidewalks occupied by tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There'd be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Where Christ is not preached. A gospel-less church, a gospel-void church, is what Satan wants. Paul gives us a better way. This is what makes the church the church, is that we have the good news and we proclaim it. We accentuate the gospel, as Paul shows us here. There's a lesson for us as individuals, though, as well. Do we know our Bibles uh, well enough to do what Paul does here? He's an Old Testament scholar. And we aren't, so perhaps we could not quote from memory all those Old Testament passages that he does. But the question is, could we tell the story of salvation if somebody asked it for us, asked it of us? If they said, give me a word of encouragement, would you be able to do what Paul does and bring it back to Jesus? Could you give people Jesus if you had that opportunity? Maybe you don't have an open mic, but maybe you have the open ear of a, of a spouse, a parent, your, your children, a co-worker, a neighbor... When you have that opportunity, don't waste it. And the, and the way that you can be sure you don't waste it is you bring it back to Jesus every time. You accentuate the gospel. Peter tells us we need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. What is our hope? The answer is Christ in Christ alone. So as Paul accentuates the gospel here, that's informative for us corporately and individually. You know, he did not have to do this. He could have given, because he was an Old Testament scholar or rabbi, he could have given a really interesting Old Testament lecture that would have tickled the ears of his audience and everybody would have been entertained and interested and no souls would have been saved. No hearts would have been changed. He preached Christ because that's what saves sinners. Notice, secondly... Uh, Paul, first, we, we notice he accentuates the gospel. But now as we dig into the uh, sermon properly, notice how he anchors the gospel in the Old Testament. He anchors the gospel in the Old Testament scriptures. Knowing that the um, story of salvation begins not in the gospels, but rightly in, in Genesis, means that we as, as believers can't, can't cut out, we can't excise the first half of our Bibles. Actually, it's not the first half, it's really like the first two-thirds. Seventy percent of, of the books that are bound up in this one book that you have before you, in your, in your hands, on your lap, are in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament. And so, um, yet many Christians claim that all they need in their walk are the words of Jesus. It doesn't help when big-name pastors like Andy Stanley, as he did a few years ago, tell their churches that they need to, quote, unhitch their Christian faith from the Old Testament. To unhitch their faith from the Old Testament. He did that when preaching through the book of Acts, incidentally, Acts 15. Paul didn't seem to think that we could separate our faith from the Old Testament. Uh, Paul, when describing the gospel, 
anchors it in the Old Testament. If we take to heart what he's claiming in this sermon, the person and the work of Jesus don't really make any sense at all unless you know something of our problem as, as humans and God's promise, which all are, are revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. And when you know the Old Testament well, it makes the Christian gospel that much sweeter, that much richer, that much more desired to be believed. Now, let's look back at his sermon. Notice that he doesn't just come out and say, Jesus died for your sins. Here's my word of encouragement. Um, There wouldn't have been anything wrong with that, and it's true, but it might not have been as effective. Um, Rather, what he does is he roots uh, the message of salvation in something that's very uh, familiar uh, for his for his audience, um, that is the Hebrew Scriptures. This is their family history, after all. And so we could call what Paul's doing here contextualization. Um, that is, he speaks the gospel in a way that they could understand, a way that would click. Some people think that contextualization is a bad word. That that it means. Um, you know, you're watering down the gospel or you're just caring about seeker sensitivity. But, but contextualization is all over the gospels. It's all over the book of Acts. And we do it naturally without even thinking about it. If you had the opportunity to talk about the Bible, to share the gospel with someone, the way you would go about doing that would be different if that person is 3 years old, 13 years old, or 30 years old. Right? We contextualize for the audience that's before us. Uh, Paul does, what Paul does here in Acts 13... Is really different than what he'll do in Acts 17 when he's at Mars Hill, the Areopagus. There's a pagan audience. He doesn't bother with the Old Testament at all with them because that wouldn't mean much. Rather, he quotes pagan poets to prove that they know the truth, but they've been suppressing it in unrighteousness. So for a different audience, he contextualizes the same message differently. But what he does in Acts 13 is that he presents the gospel to this Jewish audience As the concluding chapter uh, to a book that they've known their whole life and yet it hasn't been finished yet. They've been waiting for this final chapter. And he says, I have the final chapter. I have how the story ends. And it's all there with Jesus. So look at verse 17, how he works through this story briefly here. Verse 17, he begins with the Exodus. um, That... The people were great in Egypt, and he led them out with an uplifted arm. Verse 18, their wilderness wanderings. Verse 19, their entrance into the promised land. Uh, Then verse uh, 20, the time of judges and the prophets. Verse 21, then the kings, uh, the time of kings, which he highlights in particular Saul. And then verse 22, David. And that's where the story ended for the people, right? Because David's line kind of... Peter's out, and and they've been waiting still for that king. Remember, God had made a promise to David that one of your children, one of your sons, an heir of yours, I will give the throne of this nation, and indeed the whole world, as an everlasting throne. He'll reign forever and ever and ever, and, and they've been waiting for that. They're waiting for the end of this story to see the final chapter. And now Paul announces it, verse 23. Look what he says there. Of this man, David's offspring, God has brought to Israel the Savior that they've been looking for, Jesus, as he promised. And then down to verse 34 through 37, he 
he returns to this point where he compares the excellencies of Christ as king to that of David as king, right? David was the greatest king they knew, and, and now that it had been so long since a Davidic king had been on the throne, people kind of were just wishing for those days to come back. I wish we could get back to when David was king. Everything was good back then. And he says, no, I got something so much better than David as king. I'm the greater son of David as king to, to announce to you. And the reason that Jesus is so much greater comes down to the resurrection. That's the whole point he makes there in verses 34 through 37. Because he says the bones of David are now dust. He, in one sense, he's nothing anymore. But Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory, making his enemies a footstool for his feet, ruling and reigning right now. Which king do you want? That's what Paul asked the people implicitly. I'll ask you, which king would you want? A dead one or a living one? An ever-living one. Quoting Psalm 16, Paul says, A promise was told to David, You will not let, that's God, will not let your Holy One see corruption. You see, it's a promise that was made to David, but properly fulfilled in great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. He is the one who never saw corruption because of the resurrection. And, and, and then he says there in verse 36, David, he served his purpose. He served his purpose in his own generation. David was the king of, of a region. He served his pers- purpose. Christ is the king of the resurrection. Let him serve his purpose, his purpose, which is to be the savior. Verse 22, again, that, that exciting language, or verse 23, excuse me, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. And we see here's a transition point in the sermon where Paul brings it home to his audience. We see, thirdly, uh, he, not only has he now anchored this story, the gospel in the Old Testament, now he announces the gospel to his hearers. He starts evangelizing. He's not just telling a story, a story anymore. Now he's, he's bringing it on home, so to speak. And look how he personalizes the message. First, verse 26. Brothers, he's talking to sons of the family of Abraham, those among you who fear God. So he's talking to, to the Jewish people who share flesh and blood with Paul, but also those Gentiles who've been converted. He says, to us has been sent the message of salvation. It's for us. It's come to us. If you're here today, it's for you, he's saying. And then he gets even more explicit in verse 32. We bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers. This he has fulfilled to us. It's, again, for us. And then verse 38, most explicitly of all. Let it be known to you, therefore, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to whom? To you. I'm proclaiming it to you, Paul says. There's this unapologetic clarity and and uh, specificity in Paul's message. In that he doesn't kind of hem and haw and get all tied up in theological knots uh, in offering the salvation. He doesn't say, well, you know, I want to say it's for you, but I don't know because I'm not sure if you're elect or not. And so I'd like to say it is, but, you know, I, I can't quite give you that assurance. And so... Um, You know, he kind of uh, waffles back and forth. No, we don't see that at all. He dispenses with all that. 
He doesn't say, I'm proclaiming forgiveness of sins for you if you happen to be one of those children known before the foundation of the world that God uh, chose to redeem through his electing love. He doesn't say that at all. He says, I'm proclaiming to you. It is for you. And he's right to say that. And he's right because he gives an offer. Jesus is for you. But then... He gives an obligation, verse 39. So take 38 and 39 together. We see the offer and the obligation wedded together. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Offer, and by him, everyone who believes obligation is freed. Yes, he's for you if you'll have him. He died for you if you believe in him. That's what we need to do in our proclamation of the gospel as well. We don't shrink back from telling people Jesus died for you. It's not a lie. It's the truth. And so I proclaim it to you today. Jesus is for you. Jesus died for you if you believe. If you will have him. His arms are wide open at the cross. That's an invitation As he's nailed in this position, he's saying, come to me, everyone who is weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest if you'll just take it. Jesus is for you. Will you take him? Will you have him? Look how Paul describes the salvation that Jesus is is offering, that Paul's offering, verses 38 through 39. He says, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, and by him everyone who believes is freed, he says. Freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The salvation found in Jesus is nothing less than freedom. Now, actually, the word translated freedom is a Greek word, dikaio, which I know everybody is excited to know that now. Um, but it's, it's almost always translated in, uh, in the New Testament as justified. In fact, if you're reading any version besides the ESV, it has justified. Everyone who, who believes in him is justified from everything from which you could not be justified from the law of Moses. So think of what Paul is saying here. And think of where he's saying it. He's in the synagogue on the Sabbath day in front of learned Jewish and God-fearing Gentiles. And he says that, that the Mosaic law that they've come to hear, that they've come to learn from today, he says it can do nothing for you. Absolutely nothing. It can't make you right with God. And friends, our doing can never make us right with God either. Uh, we, we will always know in our, in our heart of hearts that we need to do more. We need to work harder. We need to be better. We need to do better. That's a slogan of our jaded culture today. I'm not sure if you've picked up on it yet. Uh, be better. Just be better. Um, I see it a lot on social media. It's this kind of condemning line that, that more progressive types, we could say woke types, um, would, would say towards backward, bigoted people when they make s- social faux pas, when they say something that's uh, offensive, when they commit a microaggression, and then the response is, be better. Just be better. Keep your mouth shut, go home, and think about what you've done, and, and, and be better, do better. Well, what if I can't? Do you see how that's not good news? Be better, do better. That's the law of Moses. Be better, do better. And yet Paul says... I've come to proclaim the gospel, the good news. 
well, be better, do better, work harder, is not good news. And it doesn't matter if it's the law of Moses, which the people in Moses' day were relying on, or the law of social justice, which many in our day are relying on. Either way, be better is a death sentence. And so what, what law might you be um, living by? Is it your own good works? Is it your own charity, your work ethic at the office, your abilities as a homeschooler, as a, as a parent? What are the things you're clinging to to feel whole, to feel satisfied, to feel like you're, you're right with God? And the question that I have for you is, have you found it yet? Have you found that satisfaction yet? No, of course not. So do more, guys. Be better. Work harder. Now, that's not what we preach here. We preach the gospel, and the gospel is not about you doing anything. It's about you believing. That's the gospel. The gospel is news, right? We're announcing something, what Jesus has done. Not, it's not an imposition, what you must do. We, we cannot be the gospel. We cannot do the gospel. We believe the gospel, and we proclaim the gospel, which tells us everything that Jesus has done, and he has done enough. And that's why we say it is finished. You know, this is the unique contribution to the wide array of, of religions out there when it comes to Christianity. Listen to this. This is very important for you to hear today. Christianity is the only, the only, the only religion that says your salvation does not hinge upon your works. It's the only religion that says that. That it's not about doing, it's about believing. In his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, author Philip Yancey, he recounts this uh, story that back in the mid-20th century, um, during a British conference on comparative religions, experts from all over the world had come together, and they were debating what, if any, belief was unique to the Christian faith. And they began eliminating possibility after possibility. What was it, incarnation? Other religions had... Uh, different versions of gods appearing in human form. Was it resurrection? Again, other religions talked about life after death. And the debate went on until our, the hero of the day, C.S. Lewis, strolls into the room. He says, what's the rumpus all about? And they explain, well, we're trying to figure out what makes Christianity unique compared to all other religions. And without missing a beat, he says, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. And after some discussion, the... Conferees had to agree that the notion of God's love coming to us free of charge, no strings attached, it seems to go against every instinct of humanity. The, the Buddhist eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law, each of these offers a way to earn approval. Only Christianity dares to make our approval based on God's unconditional love. It's grace, it's Jesus that makes the good news good. The gospel is the announcement about what he has done, and he has done what no law could ever do. He has made us right with God. He's freed us. He's perfected us. And that's what Paul preaches. By this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, to everyone who believes they receive this freedom. This is how Jay Gresson Machen put it in his famous book, Christianity and Liberalism. He says, from the beginning, the Christian gospel, as indeed the name gospel or good news implies, consisted in an announcement of something that had happened. 
And from the beginning, the meaning of that happening was also set forth. And when the meaning of the happening was set forth, then there was Christian doctrine. And he says this, Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That is doctrine. Without these two elements joined in an absolutely indissoluble union, there is no Christianity. I want to tell you today, brothers and sisters, if you can say Jesus Christ died for the elect, you are orthodox. But until you can say Jesus Christ died for me, you are lost in your sins. You are unsaved. Hear what Paul is offering. Hear what I am offering you today. Christ died for you. Believe it. Receive it. Well, finally, and briefly in closing, we've seen that that Paul, he's accentuating the gospel. He's anchoring it in the Old Testament. He's announcing it to his hearers. But then, finally, he anticipates the response that this gospel will, will have as he preaches on this Sabbath in Antioch. And notice that no music plays him off. They don't cut the mic. Actually, they want him to come back the next week. They want to hear more. And yet, he, he anticipates that this gospel will have polarizing effects. He, and we see it there in verse 41. 40 and 41, he quotes from Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if somebody tells it to you. So in that initial context uh, in Habakkuk, Habakkuk was saying that God uh, was about to do something that the people did. It would be so amazing that the people couldn't believe. It was a bad thing. It was that he was going to use Babylonians, God's enemies, to bring God's judgment on God's people. That was, that was just unthinkable. He said, I'm about to do something that you wouldn't believe even if I say it to you. Well, Paul uses that, and he uses it in, in, in kind of an inverse way. He said, I have good news that is so good that you're going to doubt it, that you're not going to believe it. That Jesus is for you. And Paul says, when you hear that, don't scoff, don't deny, instead believe. But the gospel has this way of provoking diverse reactions out of people. Some people wanted to hear him again, but others did not. Verse 45 says there are other Jews, when they see all the people there, they're filled with jealousy. So they start to to, um, heckle I think is the implication. Contradict what was spoken by Paul. And, and then persecution is stirred up. Uh, Paul anticipated that. More than that, the Bible anticipated it. That the gospel should be preached to the Jews first. The people to whom God's covenant first came. But if they denied it, then it's open for the Gentiles. I'll make you a light to the Gentiles. What good news for them that day. Verse 48. Do you see their reaction there? And when the Gentiles heard this, that is that the gospel could be for them, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Friends, we see here that there really is only one of two ways to respond to the gospel. And I want you to know today there's only one of two ways in which you can leave this church. Either you reject this gospel or you rejoice in it. Let's pray. Gracious God and our Heavenly Father, we give you all thanksgiving for your word to us. We thank you for the gospel which is ours and the privilege that is ours to preach it, to proclaim it. We thank you that it comes to us free of charge. We thank you that we don't just tell of a story that Jesus died, but that we can, we can sing out that Jesus died for me, that it was for me. As, as Paul would Right, so beautifully in, in Galatians chapter 2, 
that Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. Give us that bold faith that can make those same personal declarations. We pray that we would all receive that gospel with rejoicing today for the first time, and maybe um, for the hundredth time, but that this would be our hope in life and in death, that Jesus Christ has freed us from our bondage to sin and that he has made us right with you. We pray this in his name. Amen.